reading this morning is in Colossians chapter 1, and you can find this on page 1182 in the church Bibles. Colossians chapter 1, and we start at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from Revelation chapter 1, which can be found on 1, 2, 32. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you <clears throat> from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion, 
in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit. I heard behind me a, a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of, God, of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth, was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great. Great. Father, as we open this letter that you gave to John, open us that we might receive all its blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. I was in Wells earlier this week. Uh, we're in the Dice of Bath and Wells, and you have to go to Wells sometimes for meetings. I had two meetings there. And in between meetings, uh, well, before the first meeting, uh, I left somebody who was going to a conflict situation, and I went off to Costa for a coffee. And um, I was reading the papers, a bit dismal reading, really, actually. You know, it was very sad. But the people opposite me, and a table in Costa, this is Costa in Wells, you know, uh, where that film was shot. I can't what film? About the police? Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz, yeah. Um, so it's an ordinary place, an ordinary street, in an ordinary cafe. And I'm sat, and I'm sort of eavesdropping. My eaves are dropping as I'm listening to the people on the table opposite me, as I'm reading my paper. 
And they're saying, gosh, what a terrible state the world is in. Wars, planes being shot down, people beheaded, the United Kingdom breaking up. Seems like the end is nigh to me. And this is in Costa in Wales. I thought, wow, this is interesting. I don't know who these people were or what they were saying. But you may find yourself at such a time as this having similar conversations with people at school, at work, in friends' houses over dinner. And it can all be summed up, perhaps, in a question that is this. What on earth is the world coming to? There's this great sense of fragility. And some of you have been here before, some who've lived through the war, where there's been bombs falling on Bath, and you've come back, and the home is gone, or your neighbor's home, or people have died. Even the vicar of St. Andrews died during the bombing of Bath, a day after he'd been inducted. And people then, I'm sure, were saying, I wonder what the world is coming to. Now, the problem is, as we sit in our cafes in Costa, wherever that might be, we might be tempted to say, yes, I wonder that too. I wonder what the world is coming to. But how do we as a church, and each of us are the church, wherever we go in the world, whatever we do during the week, we're still church. We're little church. This is big church. Then there's even bigger church, worldwide church. Then there's the heavenly church, which is just amazingly big. But you are church wherever you go. How do we as church bear witness to the purposes of God, who is the creator and who is the sovereign Lord? How do we speak into this question? How do we speak into the uncertainties that can bring fear and doubt to people? I hope we encourage people to come and hear this sermon series. I hope we encourage people as we meet them, to come to Alpha where questions can be asked. But we encourage people too by our witness of the God that we know. And the God that we know through God's word as we open it, the God we know by his spirit dwelling within us. And we turn now in this book to the very end. I love reading P.D. James, the murder mystery writer who's actually been here to do a book signing, committed Christian, deep believer. And she writes wonderful stories about people, and usually some of them die. And you want to know who did it, who did the murder. And you could easily go to the back page and find out who did it, just to help you in all the frustration you're feeling, because you think it's this person, but then this person crops up, and it could be them. A bit like Cluder, really, Reverend Green, in the library with a knife. Anyway, we won't go there now. But we could do that with Revelation. We could think of going back to the book, but you open it, and you open the book of Revelation, and I wonder if this is your response. Oh, that's one of the books I nearly got reading. I, ne I nearly got to read, but I got halfway through and gave up because I didn't really understand it. It all seems so puzzlingly, puzzlingly different from the rest of what God's Word in the New Testament tells me. What are we to make of the strange pictures of this book, of lambs and lions and horses and dragons? How are we to understand the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of God's wrath? What is meant by the beast that emerges from the sea with ten horns on its seven heads? Or the other beast rising from the earth with the horns of a lamb and the voice of a dragon? It's all some sort of Christian first century science fiction. Star Trek comes to the Bible. One of the translators of the New Testament, J.B. Phillips, spoke about, as he read Revelation, being carried into another dimension. And as he translated the book, he said this, I was carried 
not into some never-never land of fancy, but into the ever-ever land of God's eternal values and judgments. That's an exciting place that we're visiting and a great book to study. It's one of the most exciting books in the Bible, as we'll discover. But it's also one of the most vital books for our understanding of what's going on in God's world today. What is the earth coming to in our generation? And what is God bringing his world to? And we're studying it in church, we're studying it in our groups, we're studying it till Christmas, and we may continue into the new year. But we read in verse 3 of chapter 1, it's encouraging. It's an encouraging book to read because it says, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it. You're blessed this morning. As Sue read those words, you were blessed. Did you feel it? Did you feel the blessing rising up within you? We feel blessed at those who hear it and take to heart what is written. One of the most interesting things of the last 50, 70 years, I think, is that the two Bible books which the devil has most often attacked and which most frequently get discredited are the first book of the Bible and the very last book of the Bible. The book of Genesis at the beginning is the very seed of the Bible and and it reveals God's great plan, his great plan for humanity. It reveals what he's doing in history and in bringing that plan to conclusion. It's all there in the book of Genesis. It's the book that tells us where we've come from and who we are. But the book of Revelation is the book that gives us the climax of human history. But also all that God has been doing in history since Jesus Christ came into the world, since the very church began and the great destiny to which we're going to be taken. It speaks in eternal terms. It speaks of the heavenly kingdom that is to come. And it tells us, therefore, where we are going. And it isn't surprising, I suppose, that if you can stop people knowing where they've come from and stop people knowing where they're going, they're not likely to know who they are or why they're here and what it's all about. So it's not surprising that these two great books have often been discredited because the great theme of both of them is that God is sovereign. God is supreme. He's Lord of everything. And he is working out his eternal purposes. And at the very beginning, we see that God is on the throne. We see that someone is in authority and has a plan. And so it's going to be a great comfort to us in these days. It's going to be a great strength to us And I just want to go through a bit of the background as we begin. John, we believe, is the writer because it says John, verse 4. So we presume it's written to John. But is it the Apostle John? Is it one of the first disciples or is it another John closely related to all the churches in that particular area? Because Revelation was written, we know, at the close of the first century or the opening of the second century. And John, the apostle who was with Jesus, may have died by the time Revelation was actually written. But John has been banished. He's banished to the island of Patmos. Some people go there on holiday these days. But anyway, Patmos, because of his witness to Jesus. It's a barren, rocky island, eight miles long, 
smallish place about 40 miles from the mainland of Turkey. We know it's a time of persecution. That's evidenced by the fact that John is in exile. And he writes to encourage the seven churches which we have now. Thank you, Brian. Seven churches that are scattered around Turkey. Here they are. They're scattered over 200 square miles of Western Turkey. And this letter is going around from church to church. Each of these towns is surrounded by pagan and occult practices in every area of life. They're not all Christian. They are in the thick of it. They're strongly linked to the Apostle John, it seems. There's relatively small groups of believers. They don't have buildings. And they're inconfident and they're insignificant cities. They've lived through many crises, such as earthquakes, military coups, the Jewish revolt, and even the destruction of Jerusalem. They've been threatened by the emperor Domitian, who actively persecuted all those willing to wor- unwilling to worship him as God. They just need to take a small pinch of incense and burn it to Caesar, and that would deny their belief in Christ. And if they didn't, then they would be killed. So they were faced with the challenges that Christians face in persecution, or whether to keep to their faith or whether to give it up. They're also facing heretical teaching and false prophecy. And they're all expecting that Jesus is going to return and sort out all their problems and make everything right. That is some of the background of this letter written to the churches and written to us here in Bath. But it's not really about John or about the churches. It's all about God, as the opening chapter speaks about. There's a progression here in verses 1 to 3, if you follow it now. God has revealed his secrets in and to one person, Jesus Christ. He has sent an angel to John, his servant, to show him in a series of visions and explanations all happening on the Sunday, on the Lord's Day, the spiritual realities that govern the history of the world that we're in. It's almost as if heaven is opened to John, who is suffering on this island of Patmos. And God, in his mercy, comes and gives him this amazing vision. And John's responsibility, we read, is to write it down, to record it, so others might be encouraged too and that he's to pass on this message. And God, through the angel, gives John, the churches, and us a great gift of encouragement. He gives them an apocalypse, an unveiling. He gives them a revelation of Jesus Christ, the overcomer, as never seen before. And John here isn't serving up some palliative care in which fragile Christians can escape the hard facts of the real world. It's a very real world that was being discussed in Costa, in Wells, over coffee. Revelation is profoundly about the real world, the true real world of the kingdom of God and heaven. And it penetrates beyond the surface of all that is seen, especially what we see on our screens, what we read in our newspapers. It's asking us to look beyond that, to go deeper, And to see the struggle that is there, but what is at the center of it is that God is on the throne 
The lamb is on the throne. He is alive and he's worshipped and he's reigning. And it leads to verse 6. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And as we go through this book, we have to have that in our hearts and minds and heads and everything. That God is on the throne. And that's what we're being asked to look through. As we see this glimpse of heaven coming and communicating to us here on earth. But what we discover about this book is it is all written about Jesus. Now, I don't know what image you carry of Jesus in your heart, in your head. Here are some images that you might have. Okay, is this one? Is this your image of Jesus? There are trumpets there, more than seven actually. Next image. It's a good one, isn't it? I like that one. I don't know who carries that one, but anyway, that's good. Could be Robert Powell. This is one that was often on Sunday school. Framed pictures. Jesus gathered around children. The cosmic Christ. These are different images that you may have. And it's really important as we live in this world that we do have an image of Christ. And that is what John is given here in these passages. In verses 14 and 18, it can all be gathered up, as David was sharing on Tuesday evening, with these two words that you will remember because they both begin with A. There is the awesome image of God that is revealed to John, but there is also the attentive image of God revealed in Christ, that God is both awesome and he is both attentive and near. He is transcendent. He is imminent. And we have to have both, David was saying. We can't just have one or the other. We need both. And so John begins in verse 14 with describing Jesus' hairdo. Interesting, really, talking about someone's hair. He says his hair, head and his hair were white, as white as wool and snow. He's taking it from Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, of the Ancient of Days. And Jesus is revealed as one of great age. He reveals his eternal existence, that he lives. It reveals, too, that Jesus is pure. He is sinless. He is stainless. His eyes were as a flame of fire. In the Gospels, we read about Jesus looking and gazing at people. And Jesus looked at them with love, yes, but he also looked on them with piercing truth. And he sized up Simon, Peter, really well. And he says to Simon, you are, but he also says to him, you will be. And we stand before Christ as we truly are. There's nothing hidden. And it's like a cleansing fire. Our souls are cleansed and knows. And when somebody really knows us and really knows us well and looks into our hearts, it can be an utter relief that finally we are fully known. And these are what the eyes of fire do. They are piercing right into the very heart of who you are. His feet like beaten brass, as if it had been refined in the fire, a furnace. And William Barclay translates the word beaten brass as really nobody understands what this word really means. Is it a mixture of gold? Is it a mixture of silver? Is there bronze in it? But we're taken back to Daniel, who said the messenger's feet were like the gleam of burnished bronze. It may say two things in this vision that John is given. It speaks of the strength 
and the steadfastness of God, the very solidness of him. And that's what we need. We need somebody who is eternal. We need somebody who has eyes of truth speaking into the world. And we need somebody who is steadfast and certain in all the changes that happen. And his voice was the sound of many waters, we read. This is the image. I mean, the problem is we're just seeing words here, words that are very familiar to us. If you experienced this, if you saw it as John is seeing it, you would just be overwhelmed by the power, as you would be overwhelmed if you stood by Niagara Falls, as some of us have. And just the sheer amount of water, the gallons of water that flow over that, and the sound of the waters, of the many waters, that just speak of the awesome power of God. And yet water also is seen to refresh us. As Jesus himself experienced with the woman at the Samaritan well in John 4, where he comes up to her and says, I need a drink. And this conversation happens, that he's going to give us a well that's going to rise up within us, bubbling up. He has no water jar. But he pours words into my pain-filled space, my guilt-filled place, inviting me to face my deep avoidance place. Yet, this prophet man of grace beholds my face. So this well within becomes a spring, a bubbling, babbling, watering place, an ever-drawing deeper place, my Messiah meeting place, my whole life's breathing space. Because he beholds my face. So as well as these words pouring into us of who Jesus is, there is also this refreshment that comes in and how we need that refreshment in these days. He is both awesome, but he's also attentive. There was coming forth from his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. And do you need the challenge this morning of God's word? The sword referred to here is a sharp tongue, sharp sword for close fighting. And Jesus is the one who gets up to us really close, really personal. No shield or defense of self-deception can prevent him coming through with his word to our hearts. And if we listen to him, it strips away all our self-deluding and reveals to us once again his truth. And our lives are laid bare. And we come back to his word to help us come back to the way in which he's calling us to be. He's calling us to live. And so his word sometimes is deeply challenging. Deeply challenging. As I found on retreat in reading Hosea. Where have you gone, Simon? Come back to your first love, as we will read later. Will you be challenged? Will I be challenged as we open this book of Revelation by God's word that sometimes will pierce us like a sword in order to bring us back and his face was as shining as the noonday sun. John, if it's the Apostle John, would have been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus has gone through great suffering and trials and about to face his journey to Jerusalem. He goes up a mountain and he is radiant. He's alive. He's got his heavenly glory about him and John sees this. And perhaps John is remembering this as he sees in this image the face of Jesus that is shining. Do you need to know that the face of Jesus is still shining, still radiant for you? That even though he stands there with his wounded hands inside, his face is radiant and alive. Have you lost the gaze of that face that is shining? You know what it's like when you meet somebody who just shines and is radiant? It sort of warms your whole life as the 
people on the road to Emmaus discovered. When Jesus drew near, in all their sorrow, in all their doubt, in all their fear, in all their wondering what on earth was the world coming to, Jesus comes near, and what happens? Their hearts are strangely warmed. Is your heart strangely going to be warmed as we open this book and we see the noonday strength of the sun of Jesus shining through? And in this image we see of Jesus, in all that this glory is revealed in his hair, in his feet, in his eyes, John has the response of just falling as if dead. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Other people had done this. Ezekiel, Peter, Simon, when he first met Jesus, he fell at his feet and said, Get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. In the presence of holiness, in the presence of his awesome power, we sometimes feel we just need to fall. And in the falling, as if dead, it's almost as if it's a picture of actually what happens to us. We are dead in a way, dead in our sin and our rebellion against God. And there is no hope. It's almost as if the life has been knocked out of us in the presence of who God is. And so what does Jesus do? Does he come and stamp on us? to make sure we're really put down, he reaches out to John. And this is where we see the image of the attentive Christ. And he puts his hand on his shoulder. Remember, his hand is wounded. And he says to Jesus, to John, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And all that's going on in the world today, right now, we are the people who bear that message. As Jesus came to the disciples in the boat just before the dawn, when it was still dark, when the sun had not risen, and they were fearful in the boat because the waves were coming in. They were going to drown. They were going to die. Jesus comes down and meets them, and he says to them, what? Do not be afraid. And through this book, Jesus is going to come to us, and he's going to touch us. Are you open to receive that? The awesomeness of God, yes. But do you need the Christ today who says to you, do not be afraid? And as David said, we need the whole vision of Christ. The vision of the awesomeness of who Christ is. But also how attentive he is to us. And if we look back at verse 5, we see three things finally about Jesus. He is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's great news, isn't it? In wondering what's going on, who's in charge, when is this mess going to be sorted? John is given a vision in his suffering, in his persecution on this island of Patmos, where he's separated from those he's in fellowship with, who can encourage him. God comes directly to him and says to him, Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. And he, he's the ruler. And we need to take these three phases away with us, if nothing else this morning, and focus on them as we live our Christian lives this week. In the cafes that we go to, the workplaces we go to, the people that we meet, will we carry this truly in our hearts? Will we know it? as we read our papers, as we hear of other people beheaded? 
We are living for Jesus, who is the faithful witness. That is to say, his life of total perfection, faithfully revealed the true character of who God is. His life of total obedience, always doing the things that please the Father, even to the point of giving his life, we read in verse 6. Giving his life for us. So in the life and the death of Jesus Christ, there is a faithful, there is a dependable witness to the reality of the unseen God. You may not see Jesus in Costa, but we know him to be true. We know him to be faithful. Beyond that, having died for our sins, he was raised for our justification on the Easter morning when the tomb was empty. And so he is the firstborn from the dead. We know that truth to be true. And that means that he is the head of the new humanity, that he was raised in everlasting life and limitless power, and that he gives that eternal life to everyone who turns to him and trusts in him. He is the firstborn from the dead. And because he has been raised, we too shall be raised with him. And no wonder then that he is thirdly the ruler of the kings of the earth. And throughout history and at the last judgment when every ruler and every king will submit to his authority, Jesus is the one who is going to be revealed as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who is on the throne. He is the one who governs history to work out the purposes that God is working out, purposes of his glory, of his grace. That is who Jesus is. That is who Jesus Christ is. And no wonder it is that John falls, but he also praises him. To him be glory and power forever and ever. So it is a book all about Jesus. And your future and mine is all related to how we relate to Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing to know this morning that he has freed us from sin and death, that he's made you to be kings and priests to serve him and his Father. It's a wonderful thing to know that the key to history, the very key to your life, to my life, to the very future of the world in this question, what is the world coming to? It is all in the true Sunday school answer to the question, it is all about Jesus. And do you know him this morning? Do you know this awesome, attentive Christ? Do you have him in your heart? Do you believe in him? And that he will return again? Because this is the ground on which our faith is built and to which our lives are to be focused. We praise his rising, we sang. Eyes are turning to you. And as we open the book of Revelation, we're going to see, because it is about revealing who God is and revealing what he's doing in the world. And we as people need to bear that when we find ourselves sitting in wells in Costa with people asking really deep questions. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. And we are to bear witness to that because John was called to testify, to give testimony, to tell others, to make it known. Are we prepared to do that in the coming Alpha course? In the people you meet this week? 
Are you really prepared to just take that next step when somebody says, what's the world coming to? Well, I believe. And then we go on and say what we believe. Somebody coming into church on a heritage weekend was invited to come here this morning to church. That's a beginning, isn't it? Because people are desperately lost and fearful with all that's going on. I pray they come and find the awesome, attentive Christ who will reach out to them, perhaps through you this week, and say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. I hold the keys of death and hell. It's okay. It's okay. I'm here. Would you stand?